You know, in 1962, uh, a new cartoon came out called The Jetsons. And uh, The Jetsons predicted what life would be like in the future. And specifically, they predicted what life would be like 1,000 years from 1962. So 2062. Well, here we are in 2019. You know, we're over halfway to The Jetsons. We're over halfway there. It's interesting to go back and watch that cartoon and think about some of the things they predicted would be true in 2062. And in some cases, we're already there. In the Jetsons, there was video chat. They could see each other and talk on screens. In 1962, that would have seemed impossible, but now we do it all the time. They had moving walkways. They didn't have to walk anywhere, just took them places. And, of course, that's not everywhere yet, but it's in airports and different places. So there were some things that they got right, but there's some things where I don't know if we're going to get there. I mean, who knows? Uh, First off, of course, flying cars. Cars that, cars that would, would fly, and there was, of course, never any traffic where they were going. But I think the most ridiculous thing was that George's car, when he landed at his office, would transform into his briefcase. Uh, I don't know if we're going to get there by 2062. There were the, when they wanted breakfast, they would push these little buttons, kind of like a vending machine, but much more advanced than a vending machine, where something would come out of the wall and give a bowl and then pour the cereal and then pour the milk, and then the little boy was on his way to eating breakfast. And the thing I think that most people looked at when they watched the Jetsons and thought, I need that was the machines that would get them ready in the morning. You know, they would just wake up in the morning all sleepies in their eyes and, 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 and not ready to go, and they would walk in, go through this machine, they would pop out, and their hair would be perfect, and then they'd go into another machine, and they would come out dressed and with their clothes and ready to go and drive off to work in their car-slash-briefcase. And, you know, I think when, when one of the things that was appealing about the Jetsons, which only ran for one season, actually, was that when, when you saw the future, you thought, it's going to be easier It's going to be easier. It was the promise of less work. I think that kind of everybody thought, well, that'll that'll be cool when we get there. And I think there are many people in our world today who would love to do less work. They'd love to do less work. What we're going to consider this morning is what if work isn't something to be avoided? What if work isn't the enemy? What if work isn't something simply to be endured? What if the Bible actually teaches us that work is a lot more than that? And then there are other people who, instead of wanting to do less work, they can't imagine life apart from work. And for those of you in the room that are like that, I would say maybe work isn't something to be overly attached to. Maybe it isn't something to be addicted to, to be defined by, to adore, and to worship. And for some of us, work, I think the Bible will teach us this morning, work actually means less than you think it means. And for others of us in this room, you're going to learn this morning that work actually means more than you might think it means. We're finishing up our series in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Paul here is writing this letter to this young church in Thessalonica, and he drills in on a specific issue that they're having in this church, and we're going to read this together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13, Paul writes these words. Now we command you, brothers, Paul's given commands here, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother, this could be a brother or sister, of course, from any brother who was walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. You know, Paul had a skill. He had a craft. He was a tent maker. And even though they weren't in Thessalonica very long, apparently they were there long enough for Paul to actually uh, set up and and sell his tents and maybe do repairs on on different things. I don't really know what tent making looks like, but whatever it was, he, he did it. Verse 9, it was not because we do not have that right. Paul says the, 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 the teacher, the preacher, the traveling evangelist does have the right to be supported by the local church. 
But we wanted to give, our, give to you, or give you in ourselves, an example to imitate. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. <laughs> it's a little play on words in the Greek there, and, and the ESV gets it pretty, pretty right here. Not busy at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons we command, this is the third time in this text Paul has used the term command, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. All right. Three truths we're going to learn this morning from this passage about work, about your work, whatever your work is. And the first truth is this. Your work is not your curse. Your work is not your curse curse. Now, I know you might feel like it's your curse someday. Some of you go to work, some of you have jobs, you feel like it's a curse. And I'm not just talking about uh, the sort of work that you get paid to do. Some of you moms, you feel like picking up after your kids day after day after day is your eternal curse. I understand that. But the Bible teaches that your work is not your curse. What's happening in Thessalonica is that there are people who are able to work, but refusing to work. We don't totally know why they're refusing to work, but we have some ideas. There's really two primary reasons why they probably weren't working, maybe a third. Maybe they were just lazy. But also, we know from other texts in Paul's writings to this church that some of them were sort of moochers. You know what a moocher is? They were leeches. They were living off wealthy people. So as this new community of people was being formed by the grace of Jesus... What they were finding for the first time ever, this was way out of their normal societal expectations, is that wealthy people were now friends with poor people. That normally would not have happened. They would have connected based on socioeconomic uh, or, or ethnic uh, circles. But because they had a new common bond in Jesus, now citizens of the kingdom of God, they were now with other, uh, the Gentiles and the Jews were worshiping together, and the rich and the poor were together, and the men and the women were together, and some of these lines were being divided. And what the poor were finding was these wealthy people actually are very generous because their hearts have been touched by the grace of God. And this is kind of works out for me to have Daddy Warbucks now in my church. And so I could work, but why work? Because they're just going to take care of me. That was one of the motivations. Another possible motivation, and we know this because Paul spends so much time in this book addressing their eschatology, which is what they believe about the end of times, is that there are people who actually believe Jesus is coming back so soon, then why work? Why does it matter? Work is insignificant if Jesus is coming back soon. And Paul disabuses them of both of these mentalities, and he says, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Now, we do have to say this. I have to be clear. Paul is talking to people who are able-bodied and can work, but are choosing not to work. He's not talking to people who can't work because of mental disabilities, physical disabilities, social issues. He's not talking to people who can't work just because they can't find work. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about people who could work, but are choosing not to work. They don't want to work. They don't think work matters. They might even think of work as a curse. But the scriptures take a remarkably high view of work, and it actually starts right at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, this beautiful creation poem, what we see is that God is revealing himself really in two primary ways. Number one, as a creator and as a worker. God is radically creative, but he's also intensely committed to doing 
work. And the sort of work that we see God doing in Genesis 1, here's some, here's some adjectives to describe the sort of work that God does in Genesis 1. He does creative work. He does intellectual work, verbal, thoughtful, constructive, construction, uh, communicative, manual label, um, labor, organizational, practical. He creates things that are beautiful, aesthetically pleasing. He's, a, he's an artist, productive. He's providing substance. He's providing a place for flourishing. He's creating work that is interconnected in a supporting supportive life-giving manner. He's creating for the good of the rest of the creation. So, so God in Genesis chapter 1, the first thing we learn about God is that he is a worker. He works and he creates. Well, what does that have to do with you and me? Well, in the very next chapter, he, uh, humankind is created. And look what we read in verses 5 through 7 in Genesis 2. It'll be on the screen for you. Uh, Genesis 2 is, a, is kind of a secondary creation account, a little more detailed, a little more literal than Genesis 1. And in verse 5, we see this. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and what's the problem? What is the big issue here? There's no human to work the ground. So the mist is going up from the land and was watering from the whole face of the ground. So God has created this beautiful world. He's not even sending rain yet because there's no one to steward creation. There's no one to manage creation. There's no one to keep and till and tend to the garden. And so then we get to verse 7, which says, Then, to solve the problem of someone needs to work, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. We skip down to verse 15. It says this, The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and keep it. You can't, we can't miss this. We were created to do work. Humankind was created to work in creation to work on creation, to work with creation, to work over creation, and to work for the good of creation. And to do it in a way that reflects the image of our creative working God. And I want us to realize that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 come before Genesis 3, of course. That says math. But, but in Genesis 1 and 2, in Genesis 3, it's the fall. Sin enters the world. The curse comes. But in Genesis 1 and 2, there's no curse. There's no fall. There's no sin. There's no brokenness. Your work is not your curse. Work is not the result of sin, the fall, or the curse that came upon humankind and creation. Now, work became a lot harder. It became a lot more difficult because of the curse. But work itself, and I, and I always like to think this, if work existed before the curse, if work existed in this paradise, then work will exist in the new kingdom, in the new heavens and new earth. We will continue to do good work. Your work is not your curse. Your work is your blessing. James M. Hamilton Jr. in his book, Work and Our Labor in the Lord, says it this way. He says, work is neither punishment nor cursed drudgery, but an exalted, godlike activity. Any kind of work. And I hope as I'm talking you're thinking about your work. You probably are. The work you do. Um, the work you do at home. The work you do in your place of work. The, the work that you enjoy to do with your hands, whether you're a musician or an artist or a chef. This encompasses all of that sort of work. 
So, so let me summarize what I'm saying. We were created in the image of a creative working God. We were given a mandate from heaven to work, to make culture, which means to take the raw ingredients of creation and to build, improve, discover, invent, extending God's reign and rule throughout his creation so work matters. It's God's desire for us to do good work. So your work is not your curse. Maybe you're wondering, well, what about my work? Does my work matter? What I do, I'm a teacher, I work in a hospital, I, I build things, um, I stay at home and I, and I take care of a home for my family. Does my work matter? And Scott Sauls, who's a pastor in Nashville, uh, he says this, and I, I find this very helpful. He says that any kind of work, think about your work, any kind of work that leaves people, places, or things in better shape than before any kind of work that helps the city of man become more like the city of God, where truth, beauty, goodness, order, and justice reign, is work that should be celebrated as good. Any kind of work that leaves people, places, or things in better shape than before. And he goes on to make the point that when we do this sort of work that leaves people, places, and things better than we found them, then we image God, we worship him. So when a chef takes the raw ingredients of salt, flour, and water and makes homemade pasta, that's good work. Can I get an amen? That's good work. That is good work, especially if it's cooked al dente. That's good work. When an author takes the raw ingredients of words and ideas and imagination and presents us with a story that captures our imagination, that's good work. When teachers shape and, mind, uh, shape and mold the minds and the hearts of young people, when, when, jan when janitors and, and, and trash collectors come through and clean up our streets and take our trash, they're leaving things better than they found them. That is good work. And that's work to be celebrated. He says this. He says, he goes on to say, mothers image the nurture of God. Artists and entrepreneurs image the creativity of God. Government leaders and business executives, the rule of God. Healthcare professionals and counselors, the healing hand of God. Educators, the wisdom and knowledge of God. Nonprofit workers, the mercy of God. Fashion inventors and stylists, the beauty of God. Marketers and advertisers, the evangelistic energy of God. Authors and storytellers and filmmakers, the drama of God. What does this all mean? It means we worship God through our work. Your work is not your curse. Your work is your blessing. And it's intended to be a tool through which you can worship him, whether you do manual labor, intellectual work, service, sales, transportation, whether it's work you do at home, whether it's artwork, schoolwork, students, all of this work that we do, our hobbies, our creativity. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whatever you do, eat, drink, anything, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. There's literally nothing that you can put your hand to to do work that cannot be done to the glory of God as an act of worship. And here's what, here's, let me give you a couple implications and we'll get to the second point. Here's what this means for us. It means that all of life, everything we put our hands to, everything we put our hearts to, everything we put our minds to, to do, it's all can be done to the glory of God. It's all worship. So here's another thing it means. It's all ministry. It's all ministry. We need to broaden our definition of the word ministry. Your ministry is not the nursery, although thank you for those of you that serve there. Your ministry is not being a greeter, although we're glad your smiling faces are there on Sunday morning. Your ministry is not being on this band, although we're glad that you use your gifts. That's not all that your ministry is. Your ministry is any work God has given you to do. Because ultimately, we've all been given a mission by God. And our mission really is to bear his image well, to extend his reign and rule, 
to take care of creation, to do good work, and to make disciples. If you want to look throughout the sort of all of Scripture and find where are the different mandates that God gives to his people, those are really the big ones. And so whenever you do good work, whether it's a counselor or whether you're, just a, whether, you're, whether you're in sales, whether you're serving people, whatever it is, whenever you're helping people in any sort of way, you are bearing God's image. You are fulfilling the mission that God has given you. And ministry is simply the vehicle through which you fulfill your mission. So whatever your mission is, which is to bear God's image, to do good work, to honor him and to extend his reign and rule and to make the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven, as you fulfill that mission, your ministry is anything you do to fulfill it. So your ministry could be shoveling sidewalks for older people in your neighborhood. Your ministry could be welding together two pieces of metal. Your ministry can be doing surgery. Your ministry can be teaching. Your ministry can be selling a shirt to somebody that needs a shirt. This is all part of what God has called us to do because your work is not your curse. For the Christian, listen, for the Christian, doing good work is a vital part of carrying out the mission of God. It's not the exception to the mission of God. Sometimes people think, well, my ministry is Sunday mornings and then the rest of my life I just work. It's all ministry because it's all about fulfilling his mission and doing good work. Okay, your work is not your curse. Secondly, second thing we see in this text is your work is not your worth. So here we have sort of uh, opposite errors. On one end, people who endure work, and on the other end, people who adore work. People who are idle in their work, and people who make an idol out of their work. Your work is not your source. Three times Paul commands, which is a little bit unusual for Paul, he's not always as strong with his language, but he is, gets stronger with his language towards the end of his letters, and he commands them three times on this topic. And two of the times that he commands them, he commands them in a really interesting way. He says, I command this to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's about as powerful as a command as an apostle could give to a church. I'm commanding you this, not in my name, but in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know Lord is not a term we use a lot in our vernacular, unless you're talking about Lord Vader and Star Wars, or unless you're Downton Abbey fans, you're talking about those lords. But, but in America, we don't, we don't know a lot about what it means to be a Lord. But when you study the New Testament, the term Lord is the predominant title used for Jesus in Paul's writings. Not Savior, but Lord. And the reason why is because once you figure out who someone's Lord is, you know then who their Savior is. Once you know who their heart bows to, then you know who they're ultimately putting their trust in. And so Paul here is saying, your work is not your worth. Uh, some people work to live. Some people live to work. You do, not worship, you do not worship your work. You worship through your work. But many people, maybe you, look to their work to establish their worth. And they feel this inextricable tension or connection between their value and their work. You know, we learn this as, as young children. When people ask us, when you grow up, what do you want to be? It's not even what do you want to do often. It's what do you want to be? And it's this connection between identity and work. And your value is tied to your ability to provide, to accomplish, to achieve. Many people look to their work to establish their worth. They don't work to live. They actually live to work. I was reading an article earlier this week young woman named Mandy M., who's a guest writer for HuffPost, she was writing an article about realizing that she was a workaholic. There were a few, few quotes in this article that jumped out at me. 
She said this, the entire time I was a workaholic, I kept telling myself, no, 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 I'm just driven. I'm just driven. Secondly, she said it was a high to succeed at work. She, she tells her story about how earlier in life she struggled with other highs, chasing after it in other ways. She realized those were bad for her, and then she started finding work, and now she just found a new place to get high in a different way. She says, it was a high to succeed at work. The same rush I'd felt so many times from drugs, from love, from rapid unhealthy weight loss, and I was more than willing to work myself into the ground to get my fix. She was addicted to the high of work, whether it's the productivity that you are addicted to, whether it's a sense of importance, value, and worth. And then she said this, and I thought this was very insightful. The interesting thing about our culture, speaking of the American culture, is that we are rewarded for this behavior. This is the one addiction that you're rewarded for. You're addicted to drugs and alcohol, people around you are not gonna reward you for it. They're gonna hopefully step in and try to confront you. You're addicted to something you shouldn't be watching. You're addicted to a bad behavior. People, but this is the addiction that our culture says, good job. And they give us raises and promotions and pats on the back. She says, we reap the benefits in the form of money, preferential treatment, and praise. And I read this article, I thought to myself, you know, her worth is tied up in her work. Her work was her Lord, her master, her idol. And while some people are idle and they won't work, other people make their work into idols. And of course, an idol, we talk about idols a lot here, because it's where really the battle lies in our hearts. An idol is anything that we trust in or treasure more than Jesus. Anything we wrap our hearts around. Anything we look to. Anything we place our hopes in. Anything we say, if I lost that, I don't even know who I would be. How many times have you heard, maybe not as much as me because I listen to a lot of sports talk, but how many times have you heard athletes as they approach retirement, the fear of when I can't pick up that bat anymore and hit a, hit a fastball, when I can't shoot hoops anymore, I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't even know who I am apart from that. All of their worth is tied up in their work. It's not just about worshiping work itself, but it's worshiping what work might bring you. So think for yourself, what is it that work brings for you that you so value and treasure, whether it's meaning, status, wealth, a sense of purpose? And here's some ways that you know that this is your struggle, and I think many of us struggle with this. Listen to these reflection questions. You don't know who you are apart from your work. When you meet people, the first thing you always want them to know about you is your work, what you do, and how hard you work and how much of a self-made man or woman you are, and how much better you're making society, and you can't wait for the conversation to shift to that because so much of your sense of self is wrapped up in that. You can't walk away from work. You can't shut your mind off. You can't find rest because you're obsessive and addicted to work. The happenings at work, the events at work, the circumstances at work have so much power over your emotional well-being. There's no peace. You're jealous of other people in your place of work who seem to be surpassing you and who maybe come in behind you, but they're better than you. There's no joy when you're addicted to work. You comfort yourself by looking down and judging those who aren't as good at you as your work. And you make a big deal of it. See, there's no kindness to be found when work is your Lord. And you're a slave to work or to whatever work provides you. You put your trust in your work. There's no freedom. Did you hear what I said? There's no rest. There's no peace. There's no joy, there's no kindness, there's no freedom. Because when your worth is found in your work, then your work is your Lord and it owns you. And it cannot provide for your heart what you really need. Rest, joy, peace, confidence, security. Outside of your ability to perform. Outside of your work. 
We are to worship through our work, but not worship our work. So your work is not your curse. Your work is not your worth. And then let me finish this morning, the last point. Your work is not your source. The very last verse we read, Paul says, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in doing good. And still connected to the previous conversation. So he's saying in all of your work, the work you've committed yourself to, don't grow weary. But how do we not grow weary in our work? How do we not grow weary in doing good? And the only way to not grow weary is you and I need an endless source of strength that has nothing to do with our work. And what or who is our source? You know, for some people, let me, let me go back. For some people, work is your curse. You're weary of work. If you didn't have to work, you wouldn't work. If you could live a life free from work, you would. You dream of the Jetsons. Well, you don't have to do anything but just sit back and just let life happen. Some of you, work is your curse, you're weary, and you would look at work and you would say, you look at even the work you do and you go, this is meaningless. And the Bible says, no, your work matters. Because whatever you're doing, you can do it to his glory and you can bear his image. But for those others of you, work is your worth. But you're, here's the thing, you're also weary. But you're weary because you think, without that, I am meaningless. So on one hand, work is meaningless. And on the other hand, without work, I am meaningless. Work can seem like it's our ultimate source of blessing, provision, meaning, standing, and identity. And even the world knows, by the way, that this isn't good. When I was preparing for this message, I, I simply searched the phrase, your work does not define you. Do you know how many articles are out there written by non-Christians, business magazines, trying to convince people that their work doesn't define them? In all those articles, and I read a bunch of them, it's just a bunch of good advice. There's actually no solution, and everybody knows it. The only real solution that they ever offer is instead of letting work define you, let your family define you. Instead of making work your idol, make your family your idol. And the only advice out there outside of the gospel which breaks the cycle of worshiping false gods is just switching your affections and your attention from one lesser God to another lesser God and thinking, there, I fixed myself. And you're still a slave. But in Jesus, we have good news. We have the gospel. Here's what we have. We have his work. His work. This past week, I was in New York City with Jer Pastor Jared and Pastor Bill. We were down there for some meetings. And uh, anytime in New York City, you know, my number one priority is, is, of course, to learn and grow and develop myself as a leader. And then my second priority is to eat as much good food as I can. Jared and I stayed in an Airbnb, which is in and of itself an interesting story. Uh, up on 110th Street on the Upper West Side. We didn't realize our meetings were on, the or on 14th Street. So you can do the math, it's 96 blocks. It's a lot of walking. And uh, we got up early one morning, we didn't have to be there till 12.30, we got up, we went out, we found a great bagel shop and we just started walking south. It was definitely not our plan to walk the whole way. It was our plan to just walk until we didn't wanna walk anymore and then Uber the rest of the way. But we, we just kept finding places to eat. So we just, you know, and then when you're eating, you actually kind of want to walk because you're getting, you want to work it off so that you can justify eating at the next place that you get to. And so we're walking, we're eating, we're walking, we're eating. We finally get to our location. We're part of this conference and there's a Korean speaker. His name was Ju Hyun. He, he oversees a network of churches in New York City called Hope Church Network. And he was talking about how he used to be a part of a tremendously large church in Queens and how proud it made him to tell people that was his church, that he was a pastor there. And he was actually supposed to be the next pastor. If you know Pete Scazzaro, who wrote a book on the emotionally healthy Christian, it's his church. And this guy was going to be the next lead pastor of this church. And it gave him so much pride. And it was all lined up to happen. In the middle of it, God told him, 
This, 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 is, this will destroy you, essentially, because your identity is so wrapped up in being a pastor of a big church, you need to step away and leave this place. So he left this place with no sense of where to go, and, and, and they travel a little bit. He got this opportunity to take a church in San Francisco, which would have been equally influential, big church. In the midst of this, he said he read this verse in Psalm 33, and when he read this, it really spoke to my heart this week. Psalm 33, 16, he says, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. I'll leave that up there for a second, and let me, let, me have, let me have some liberty here. The worker is not saved by his great work. The employee is not saved by their promotions, by their salary package, by climbing the ladder. The king is not saved by his great army. That's so counterintuitive. Of course a king is saved by his great army. That's why you build a great army, right? Not in the kingdom. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. Verse 17, the war horse is a false hope for salvation. Your career path is a false hope for your salvation. Your raise, your promotion, it's a false hope. By, by its great might, it cannot rescue your work which God has given you to do to his glory. It cannot rescue you. It cannot define you. It cannot fulfill you. It cannot satisfy you. But verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord. That's what we want. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his steadfast love. And when he read that verse, I said, oh, Holy Spirit, let me hope in your love. I don't need to hope in the size of the church. I don't need to hope in whether or not you like the sermon. I don't need to hope in what's happening here. I don't want to place my hope in those things. I want to place my hope in the steadfast love of Jesus Christ, fully expressed and seen at the cross. And here's a, really the last thing I want to say to you this morning, and, and let it just work its way into your heart. Let me encourage you and challenge you. Never look. Don't look to your never-finished work. You know what I'm talking about. You're never finished work. It's never finished, is it? There's always more. There's always someone who's better than you at what you do. There's always someone who's further along. There's always the client that you want. There's always the next opportunity, the next promotion. Never look to your never finished work to do for you what Jesus Christ's already finished work has done for you. His work is sufficient, it's complete, your work is not your source. Jesus is your source. Trust in him. Worship him. And here's what you'll find. When you begin to work not to establish your worth or define yourself, but you begin to work because you want to worship God through your work, you're actually going to do great work. I think your work will be better. I think you'll be noticed for your work. I think all the things will come with it, but it's about the heart motivation. I'm not working for their attention. I'm not working for their approval. I'm not working for access to this lifestyle. I'm working because I worship God by bearing his image, doing good work, and because Jesus' finished work is enough for me. Let's pray together.